0: Give your attention to the reading of God's Holy Word, Isaiah 52, verse 13, a prophecy regarding the suffering of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, as many were astonished at you His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Amen. This far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. And then go to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. We'll do a sermon uh, from the Gospel of Luke this week as we turn our attention to the Lord's suffering. Luke 23, we'll begin at verse 1, we'll uh, focus especially verses 13 through 25. Luke 23, verse 1, this is as Jesus is standing trial and uh, before Pilate. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I find in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray once more. O great and heavenly Father, speak now through your word that you might be glorified and your gospel and your Son, Jesus, set before us, that we might behold him with the eyes of faith, treasure him in our hearts, and honor him and you, O Father, with our lives. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what a glorious exchange we see in Christ given for the sinner. Imagine uh, you see a friend of yours uh, who has a shiny brand new car. And uh, you make mention of it to him and say, Boy, that, that, that's a, a nice car you have. His previous car was not necessarily a, a clunker, it wasn't terrible. But uh, this new one is obviously brand new and, and a, a very nice model. And so you ask him where he got it. He said, Well, I, I went to the dealership. And, You know, selling cars is kind of an an easy thing these days for the dealers as they're having trouble even just keeping them on the lot. Cars seem to be going very quickly and and the prices are up. And he says, yeah, I went to the the dealership and uh, didn't think I would get very much for the trade-in, but I gave my old car and and they they gave me this new car and demanded no extra money. Nothing else was was needed for the deal. It was a, a clean trade dead even. You think to yourself, something doesn't make sense here. Surely this is a dealer that's soon to go out of business. Whatever he's doing is is, is not going to work. But your friend has left out one ingredient. You see, the, the owner of the dealership is his father, and his father loves him. And all of a sudden, that which was illogical seems to make perfect sense. Without that one ingredient, it seemed like Something is, is wrong here, but now all of a sudden, oh, his, his dad owns the dealership and his, his dad loves him and wants to care for him and has compassion for him. Suddenly, what did not make sense makes perfect sense and nothing else needs to be said. You see, love closes the gap between illogical and, and logical. The compassion and concern of a loving father to provide for the child causes everything to, to make sense. Today, in this passage, we have the glorious, even though perhaps grotesque, exchange of the gospel. Jesus in exchange for Barabbas, in which we see the overarching picture of the salvation of all believers, the Lord in our place. Without the love of the Father, without the the compassion and the work of Jesus Christ for sinners, none of it would seem to make any sense. But but not only does it make sense when we consider it in light of the love of the Father for his children and the compassion of Jesus Christ, we find in this picture the ultimate assurance for salvation that it has been finished for us because we see that the all-sovereign, all-powerful God, the Son of God, did not cheat justice, but rather honored and acted according to it so that our salvation might be sure and certain and kept in heaven. Jesus was silent before his accusers. He submitted to his Father's will, said no words on the way to the cross so that he might speak on your behalf in heaven. See, this is no earthly message. It is a message fit for heaven. And if your eyes are upward, you will rejoice in the work of your Savior. So we see in this passage the innocent Jesus and the grotesque and glorious exchange. First, we have the the innocent Jesus. As we see these interactions with Pilate and Herod, we find that uh, the, the, the Jewish leaders have embellished and, and even lied in regards to what Jesus has done. He said, we can't pay tribute to Caesar. Well, that's, that's not what he has said at all. He said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. But they have said he's an insurrectionist, basically. And in Rome, that's, the, that's really the one thing that you can't be. You can't be an insurrectionist. You can't disturb the peace that Rome is trying to build. As they would claim new territory, they would make all kinds of compromises with both the the, the polity and the governance of of a region and also the religion. And they would kind of try to meld it all together. But the one thing you could not do was disturb the peace. Start an insurrection. Imagine something like a, a company where the the, the, the owner or the CEO lets all kinds of things happen that are rule-breaking or ill-advised. The one thing you can't do is steal from him, right? So the one thing you can't do in Rome, you can't disturb the peace. But Pilate does not find any fault with Jesus here, and uh, neither does Herod. This seems to echo Deuteronomy 19, that the biblical principle of the sub- substantiation of a case is built upon uh, two witnesses, the account of of two witnesses. And here you have two rulers who are agreeing and and, and making, pronouncing judgments that this man is is not guilty. So his innocence is presented there in verses 13 through 16. It seems as though Pilate thinks, if I can just present the facts to these people, then uh, they will see it the way that I do. But woven throughout all of this passage, what do you see? You see the the madness of sin at work. Sin is at work in the hearts of those who are calling for the crucifixion of Jesus. In the hearts of those who have brought this situation in the first place, sin is at work. And so the first thing you see is that sin blinds. Sin blinds. Pilate and Herod are saying... In regards to the eyes of the law looking at this man, he has done nothing wrong. Pilate makes that explicit. It's not just he's done some things wrong, but it really doesn't deserve death. He says, I I find him innocent of all of your charges. This man is, is not guilty of anything with which you charge him. But then you find in verse 16 something very interesting. Though not guilty, Pilate says, I will punish him. I will will punish him and and release him. Well, what's going on here? Perhaps Pilate thinks that he's going to satiate the crowd. He's going to quiet them down if, if he gives them something of what they want. Well, we'll punish Jesus. We'll teach him a lesson and that'll make everyone happy and maybe this man will learn his place and Stop stirring things up with the religious leaders. But again, we're dealing with the sinful human heart. Sin not only blinds, sin enslaves. Sin will always demand more. So since sin is at work, is any halfway measure going to be good enough for those who are opposing Jesus? Well, no. There have been studies done on, on the brain as we've seen addiction kind of proliferate throughout our nation. Something that happens with, with drug addiction is that the, the chemistry of the brain is changed. So if you can imagine kind of a, a, a two-lane road, one lane going each way, that is kind of the pleasure pathway of the brain. When someone becomes uh, begins using illegal drugs for this uh, influx of pleasure, that two-lane road becomes like an eight-lane freeway. And there's all this pleasure that's kind of ramped up and, and, and thrown into, into the brain. But something that happens is the, uh, the, the chemistry has changed in, in such a way that all of a sudden, more and more is needed to achieve any kind of pleasure. One of the saddest things that happens is that, you know, for a, a normally functioning brain, the, the, the hug of a, a loving family member uh, can bring lots of, of, of pleasure to someone. But the love that you share with a, with a relative or a, a family member, a, a good meal with friends. Those kinds of things no longer bring any, any satisfaction to those whose uh, brains have been changed in this way. And sin operates that way, doesn't it? It'll always demand more, it needs more, it's never satiated. Any, here's an, an interesting principle to chew on, any sinful desire that you succumb to, will never be satisfied. Never. It may be blunted for a few moments, but it comes back stronger. Sin enslaves, and this crowd is driven mad by sin. We see that this frenzied reaction as the innocence is presented, and it's rejected. So sin not only enslaves, and sin not only blinds, sin stupefies. It causes you to reason in all kinds of crazy ways, and and this sham of a trial is perhaps the the pinnacle of human absurdity, isn't it? The only sinless man who has ever lived, the only sinless human being who has ever lived standing trial for something he clearly has not done, being convicted of that which he did not do by those who shout at him, or being sent uh, to the death penalty for something that even the rulers say he has not done. So that brings this grotesque and glorious exchange of of the gospel. Pilate's judgment is rejected. We see sin sin stupefying the crowd. They cry out together with one voice. We'll we'll see later that there are those who are at the foot of the cross weeping for Jesus. So it's not every single soul in that crowd that's crying out, but the strong majority. This This is mob rule. Sin stupefies in such a way that as they look at the sinless Lord, what do they demand? They demand this criminal, Barabbas, and this passage is given to us so that we focus on that contrast between Jesus and Barabbas. He mentions twice Luke does under the inspiration of the Spirit that Barabbas is in jail for insurrection and for murder. Insurrection, that which Jesus was uh, convic- er, that which Jesus was accused of, but absolved in the eyes of Pilate and Herod, but we know that Barabbas is an insurrectionist. It's a matter of record. It has happened and he's been convicted of it. Jesus is the one who says, my kingdom is is not of this world. Barabbas is a man who lusts after uh, gaining earthly power or at least erasing the power of the kingdom of Rome. His hope is below. Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world. Barabbas is a murderer. He's one who takes life. Jesus is the ultimate giver of life. He is the one who, through whom and, and, and by whom all things were created and he is the one who gives new life in and through the gospel of grace. He's the ultimate giver of life. Barabbas is a taker of life. So their contrast is, is stark and direct. The early church saw Barabbas as, as offspring of the devil. His own name, Barabbas, son of a father. Bar, Abba, son of a father. So we're meant to see them side by side. And, and, and what, do you, what do you see when you put the perfect Jesus Christ, the glorious and the, the holy one, the one in whom is all of our hope, the, the greatest desire of our souls next to this one, whose life is ridden with sin and sinfulness and ugliness. Well, it's a grotesque comparison. It's a comparison that should never even be made. But what kind of a world is it that demands evil in, such, in the face of such good? Well, it's, it's a world or a crowd or a heart whose eyes are below, who has no consciousness of, of, of heavenly things, who does not see the, the spirituality in which we exist as those who have souls that are to, to render all things unto God, for those who, who see themselves as, as rightly under sinfulness and condemnation and who need a savior. In the great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, there's an imagined conversation between Jesus and uh, the leader of the Catholic Church in, in the 16th century. And in this imagined conversation, there's all kinds of of horrifying things that are spoken to Jesus. And one of the things that is said is that, you know, when Satan tempted you, Jesus, he had it right. Because he placed before you uh, three ways in which you could enslave the human heart. The way of bread, the way of miracles, the way of power. If you satisfy people's bodily desires, give them bread they will fall down before you. Just just give them, when they hunger, give them food. Give them great signs as signs in themselves, as ways to enslave them. If you show them great power through miracles, throw yourself down, you will enslave them. And if you take power when it's offered to you, you can change all the rules. So whatever you want to do with sin and righteousness, Jesus, you could have done that if you would have taken all of the power that Satan offered to you, if you simply would have bowed down, the way of bread, the way of miracles, the way of of power. If your eyes are below, these things are attractive, ultimately seeking bodily pleasure, seeking earthly power. Jesus would not do this, for he being a righteous man would not shirk justice. If Jesus did anything other than what he did, we would not have a, a certain assurance of our salvation. And so we'll return to that in just a moment. But we see, what is it, what kind of a world is it that demands evil in the face of good? It shows us again that sin's at work. So sin enslaves, sin blinds, sin stupefies, and sin destroys. Sin destroys. They demand that Jesus uh, go to the cross and that he be crucified. The righteous one standing before them, the one in whom life is found, the one who came to bring life and to give life and to give it to the full, stands before them. And they rejected. They rejected him. What do we do with this picture? Again, the, the comparison of Barabbas and Jesus that tr- truly is no comparison. Well, as I said, it's grotesque. The sinner, the insurrectionist, the disturber of peace, the murderer, Barabbas for the spotless lamb of God. But in another sense, you have one of the most glorious pictures, one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture of of the gospel of grace. Barabbas is helplessly imprisoned. He's, He's already convicted. There's nothing that he can do to get himself out of prison. There's nothing he can do to convince others of his innocence. There's no case that he can build. There's nothing that he can say. Everyone knows the reality of who he is but he goes free, just like that. And Jesus goes to the cross, the sinless sinless in exchange for the sinner. So of course we lament and we we grieve as we read these passages as believers of what happened to our Lord, our beloved Savior, and this sham of a trial, there's grief there. But in another sense, we rejoice, don't we? Why? Because I am Barabbas. Because you are. Because we all are. There is nothing that we can say. There is no case that we can build for our innocence. Our condemnation, our just condemnation, is a matter of record. We stand condemned because of what we have done. Because of the sin that we have committed. The evidence has been laid out. Our guilt is as clear as this man's. A great Puritan prayer, the beginning of the book Valley of Vision. So, this prayer is by the same name, Valley of Vision. I'm hemmed in by mountains of sin. We live in, in a, a spiritual valley in and of ourselves. We look in every direction, and what do we see? We see mountains of our sin, unable to climb over any of them, going in any direction. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. So we need Jesus to go to the cross. In this grotesque picture, we find our only hope for salvation. If there is anyone in this crowd who will come to trust Jesus, they need Jesus to go to the cross. If Barabbas later in his life, we don't hear about him, but if he later in his life comes to see the stunning way in which his life provides that picture and he turns in faith to Jesus, he needs Jesus to go to the cross as well. We need the cross. We need this price to be paid. Return to this uh, example in in the Brothers Karamazov. There's this imagined uh, exchange between Jesus and uh, this leader of the church. And this leader of uh, the Catholic Church utters all kinds of blasphemies to Jesus. You should have listened uh, to Satan. You should have followed his uh, when he tempted you. You should have just taken the power that he was Uh, offering to you and the, the whole exchange is meant to horrify you it's meant to to shock you and then this man finishes all of these blasphemies that he utters towards Jesus and Jesus has remained silent up to this point he moves towards him and he gives him a kiss he kisses him and in that you see a picture of the compassion of Christ You see something of the depths of gospel grace because uh, this sinful and blasphemous man has, has bared his soul and he has shown what he truly is a wicked sinner. And the Savior moves towards him. You see, Jesus knows fully the depths of who you are, He knows exactly what you have done and all of the sins that you have committed. And he moves towards you in loving compassion, in a desire to save and to cleanse. A very close friend of mine who's a a pastor in Minnesota once said very wisely, the deepest desire that we have is that someone would look at us and know exactly who we are. That we would have to hide nothing of who we are and yet that person still loves us. That's part of what we we are seeking in in Christian marriage, isn't it? That we fully show ourselves to our spouses, that they, 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 they know us more and more, that as we get to know each other over the years, and they know so much of our flaws and our failings and our sinfulness, and yet our husband or our wife still loves us. But that's what we have in Jesus. He knows exactly who you are, and he loves you. He saved you at the cross. Though hemmed in by mountains of sin, the Son of God looked at the entire human race and never at any point in human history did he say, you know what, they're too rebellious, they're too sinful, I'm not going to go and bear the cross for them. I'm not going to go and bear sin for them. Never at any point. He said, that's too much, I can't do it. He knows exactly who you are. And... He loves you. That's what you have in the Savior. And He did not shirk justice, He did not change the rules so that your heart can be filled with assurance. He was silent before his accusers so that he might speak for us in heaven. He was silent in a sense on earth as he went to the cross so that when he ascended into heaven he could say something on your behalf. And as he intercedes at the right hand of the Father, as he is in heaven as our great high priest, he speaks for you as you trust in him. Glorious truth that we find in Jesus Christ. The love of the Father The compassion of the Savior. The unflinching character and righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. To go to the cross in this grotesque but glorious exchange. Trust in him. Come to him. Make him your hope and your trust. Him and him alone. If you would be saved, you need Jesus to go to the cross. The heart grieves yet rejoices at this wondrous picture. But remember beloved. Remember that he is silent no more. He is silent no more. Hold fast to your hope in Christ. Maybe you've never seen this picture before. Maybe you've never realized this picture, the fullness of it before, that you are Barabbas. What do you do? He provides all that you need to come to him, to come to him in faith and repentance and grasp hold of his saving work for you. It's the day of salvation, for we see Christ on display. Believe and trust and hope in your Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as we come before the table now and ask that you would bless our time together as we partake. Nourish us with the body and blood of Christ. Forgive us of our sins once more in Christ's name. Amen.